You guys are behaving like my children. <laughs> Good morning. Thank you. As Kurt said, my name is Bob Vogelar, and uh, I'm not a part of the, the staff uh, here at LCF. I, I'm just a regular attender like you, but I do uh, get the opportunity to serve on the teaching team periodically, and so thank you for the privilege of doing that. Um, I will tell you that this particular passage that I'm going to share uh, this morning uh, was a powerful one in me as I prepared this lesson, um, as I think it, it always should be, but... Um, probably particularly in, a, in an especially deep way, this one. Uh, so the, the passage that we're going to look at this morning is uh, at the very beginning of Hebrews chapter 4, the first seven verses there. So if you want to open to that, just put your thumb there and, and hold it uh, in that spot. Uh, we'll get to it in a minute. But I want to begin by sharing with you a, a time that goes all the way back in my life to February of 1992 when I drove my car, which was a 1974 Volkswagen Beetle. Any bug owners, like old bug owners, 70s, you know these cars, not very reliable vehicles. I drove this from Columbia, Missouri when I was a student at Mizzou all the way to St. Louis to visit Charla, uh, my wife at the time. Charla and I were just friends, um, but drove there. She was a graduate student at Washington University. Uh, it was un unseasonably warm on this particular day in February. The highs were in the 70s, so I was dressed in a short sleeve shirt. Uh, what I didn't expect when I got dressed, though, is that the overnight low, when I would be driving back to Columbia, uh, would have the temperatures returning to the 30s. Uh, and if you've owned a Volkswagen Bug, you know the heat is not the best inside that vehicle, let alone outside that vehicle. Uh, well, I said goodbye to Charla at just after midnight, after spending a day there in St. Louis, and I headed home. And as I neared about the last 25 miles of that trip, it's about 120 or so miles, so about the last 25 miles or so, the normal gasoline smell that usually accompanies the inside of a bug, you know this smell, if you've been at least a passenger, it always had the smell of gasoline, but this smell just started to amp up in intensity. And it dawned on me with how heavy that smell was that, that that meant something had to be wrong. And then that's when I noticed my gas gauge started to just plummet rapidly. Uh, something went wrong in my uh, engine. Didn't know what it was, but I was losing fuel fast. Uh, so I set up a, uh, I said a quick prayer, Lord, please get me to a gas station. Simple prayer. And as I'm driving, um, the off-ramp to Kingdom City started to approach. And Kingdom City is about 20 miles outside of Columbia. As I'm pulling up off the off-ramp, I see a gas station right there. And back then, there was only a gas station. It's a little bigger community today. But I said, thank you, Lord, and pulled up to the gas pump. Um, but when I got out to fill up, I noticed there were padlocks on the pumps. They were closed. And in those days, pay at the pump wasn't as common as it is today. And so I distinctly remember praying again. I had a confidence that, that was rooted more in disillusionment, I think, than anything else. But I prayed, Lord, I guess this means you plan to get me all the way home. And so I got back on the interstate for the last 20 miles of the trip. But about five miles in, my VW ran out of gas. I coasted to the shoulder of I-70 at 2 in the morning. Back then, I-70 was not what it is today. There weren't a lot of vehicles. At 2 in the morning, it was fairly desolate. To walk back to Kingdom City would have taken me about an hour, but to walk the rest of the way to Columbia would have been easily three. In a short sleeve shirt and temperatures in the 30s, I was at a pretty big risk either way I decided to go. But immediately after getting out of my car, 
there was a charter bus stopped right behind me on the shoulder. Before I could react, the charter bus started to pull off onto the interstate as if to drive away. But then he stopped right next to me on the interstate, opened his door and said, need a lift? Of course, I jumped in and he drove me in his warm bus all the way back to Hudson Hall where I lived. To this day, all I know about that gentleman is his name was John, and he told me that he stopped to close the vents in the back of his empty bus so that he could be warm in the front of it. And he saw me sitting there looking like I could use a ride. Some would probably chalk that experience up to coincidence, but I can't do that. You see, the next day I called Charlotte to tell her about my adventure, and she told me she woke up about that time and couldn't go back to sleep. For some reason, she started worrying about me, got up, left her bedroom, and prayed. At two in the morning, when all this was happening, Charlotte was joining me in prayer over my situation. Then a little later in that day, a friend of mine drove me back with a can of gas to retrieve my car, but when we started the engine, we saw a little hole in the side where gas was squirting out. I stopped the engine and felt the hole, and I could feel threads and I knew that it was missing some kind of a screw. And then that's when I saw it, just below the opening, resting on a thin flap of sheet metal, was a bolt about the same size as the threaded hole. I can't explain why it didn't vibrate and fall out to the ground during the 10 or so miles I drove before running out of gas, but there it was, and it fit perfectly. I tightened it as best I could with my fingers, started the car, no more gas coming out, and I drove home. I never went back and tightened it further, never took it to a mechanic, and it never vibrated loose again for as long as I owned that car. <laughs> that night, <clears throat> I experienced God's deliverance. He rescued me. Through all of it, he gave me a peace that he was going to take care of me, and he chose to do that in such an incredibly memorable way. I think the reason the padlocks were on the gas station pumps is because if that was how God rescued me, I would not have given him credit for it. I got a taste of his perfect peace that night. A peaceful rest that I imagine is just a foretaste of God's invitation to enter into his eternal rest. Could I have missed that? Could I have chalked it up to coincidence or given credit to my own good fortune? I certainly could have. And honestly, God has probably filled my days with numerous other examples where he stood in my gaps only to have me chalk it up to being lucky. And I think that's the point the author of Hebrews is wanting to make in these first seven verses of, of Hebrews chapter 4. He spent this time anchoring down to a common story all of them could identify with of God's deliverance. And then he says this, open up Hebrews 4, 1 through 7, read with me. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them, because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest." And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day with these words, and on the seventh day God rested from all his work. And again in the passage above, he says, They shall never enter my rest. It still remains that some will enter that rest 
And those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore God again set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Heavenly Father, I just pray that as we dive into your word this morning, Father, we would not miss your rest. Father, I just pray that for each of us here, regardless of the reasons you brought us, maybe it's someone who's been here uh, every Sunday faithfully for years and years or someone who's here for the very first time, none of us are here by accident. And there's no coincidence that we're opening up your word today. Teach us, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. There are three important points I want to draw out of this passage this morning. First, what is meant when the author says we are to be careful? Second, what's so special about entering God's rest? And third, what is so significant about today that the author of Hebrews would stress it for the third time? So first of all, what is meant when the author says we are to be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of his invitation to enter his rest? Your translation might not say be careful. Your translation might say fear, lest you be found to have fallen short of it, instead of be careful. And the difference in those English translations is because the Greek word here is derived from the word fear. It actually means fear. We get our English word phobia from this Greek word. Unfortunately, this can create a wrong set of connotations regarding the biblical view of fearing God. As a result, we may miss the beauty of what it truly means to be a God-fearing person. That expression is almost entirely removed from the church's vernacular today when it once used to be so commonplace. As a result, we miss the powerful promises from God like the one in in Psalm 31.19 that says, How great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you which you bestow in the sight of those who take refuge in you. In other words, God is storing up goodness for the purpose of bestowing that goodness on those who take refuge in him, on those who fear him. So if fearing God is the right attribute for those who follow him, who take refuge in him, then how is it that fearing God has become almost extinct in how we identify ourselves as Christians? The answer, I believe, is this. We have allowed ourselves to misidentify fearing God. You see, the Greek word here doesn't mean be afraid. It means a carefulness born out of a proper fear of God, a deep reverence and awe. R.C. Sproul makes it clear that this is awe and reverence rather than panic and alarm. The right emotions are stirred by the presence of God and not by questions or doubts about eternal security. So fearing or being careful merely means we need to take seriously a self-examination with regard to God's promise of entering his rest, especially since that promise still stands today. The author of Hebrews points out with great concern because a failure to carefully examine our standing before God could result in our falling short of entering into his rest, into the perfect rest that is an eternally face-to-face relationship in perfect fellowship with the one who loves us and gave himself for us. So how do we careful how do we be careful in our self-examination? 
Well, we have to be absolutely clear in our understanding of who God is. And we can't do that accurately without a proper understanding of what it means to fear God. Jerry Bridges, in his book, The Joy of Fearing God, if you've not read that, I highly recommend it. He said it this way, In our understanding of the biblical concept of fear, we need to include three elements. Reverence in recognition of his infinite worth and dignity. Admiration of his glorious attributes. And amazement at his infinite love. Mr. Bridges went on to say that the lack of any one of these attributes will result in something less than the awe, which is the fear of God. In other words, merely being amazed at God's infinite love produces no fear. If we fail to recognize His infinite worth and dignity or adore His glorious attributes, then we take His love for granted. In fact, Jerry Bridges argued that if we miss the reverence due to God or we fail to adore Him, then we will fall short of being amazed by His infinite love. We'll start to water it down. This is because God's infinite love ends up becoming more like a you-owe-me love rather than what it really is, amazement over the love extended to an enemy who really deserves wrath and punishment, not forgiveness and mercy. Without being careful to understand who God really is, juxtaposed to an accurate understanding of who we really are in comparison, we end up watering down the promise of entering into God's rest. Hebrews 4.2 says it this way, The message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. You see, without faith, we are in no place to value the gospel. And it is in that faith that we recognize two things. One, we are stranded. We are broken down in desperate need of saving. We have absolutely no standing before a holy God. And apart from Him, we have no hope. And then the second part of that faith is that God heard that and He loved us so much that He provided a remedy that we did not deserve, that we cannot possibly earn. And it's faith in that, who God is and who we are, and that He would graciously provide a gap-closing remedy that stirs in us a desire to enter into that rest. The bottom line is if we aren't all that blown away by an invitation to enter God's rest, we won't be all that motivated to enter it. That's the second point I want to make today. What's so special about entering God's rest? Probably the best passage to illustrate this is in Matthew 11, 28 through 30. It's a very popular verse, very famous verse. And because of that, I think sometimes we miss the power of it because we've grown so used to it. But Matthew 11, 28 through 30 is when Jesus offers up the very invitation that the author of Hebrews is referring to in this passage. Matthew 11, 28 through 30 says this, Come to me, and this is Jesus speaking, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. John MacArthur says it this way. He says, there is an echo of the first beatitude in this passage. That beatitude is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Note that this is an open invitation to all who hear, but Jesus phrases it in such a way that the only ones who will respond to the invitation are those who are burdened by their own spiritual bankruptcy and the weight of trying to save themselves by keeping the law. Rest in this context is rest from an impossible situation. You see, if we didn't have Christ, there would be only one hope for us to get to be with God. And Jesus tells us what that hope is in Matthew 5.48. Matthew 5.48 says this, apart from Christ, how we get to be in the presence of God is this. Jesus says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. If we don't accept the rest offered to us by Christ, our only hope is to be perfect ourselves. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The problem is, as soon as you miss the mark, even once, perfection is gone. And it can never be regained. Think of it this way. Friday morning, I'm in a Bible study with a group of guys, and we talked about this, so I wanted to weave this in. But think of it this way. If your first class in college was a B and you wanted a perfect 4.0 GPA, how many A's would have to follow to get you back to a 4.0? Even if all the rest of your college coursework was an A, your GPA at best would be a 3.975. Where all classes are weighted equally, there's no such thing as a 4.0 GPA and a B on the transcript. But for some reason, so many people think they can just round their life up to a 4.0. And my only explanation for this is this, that they must have the wrong definition of perfection. They must be defining it as better than or good enough in comparison to others. The problem is that Jesus himself clearly illustrated the flaw in this thinking. Turn with me to Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Luke 18, 9 through 14. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. Why was the tax collector justified and not the Pharisee? Because the Pharisee was measuring his righteousness in comparison to others around him, and that gave him a false conclusion about his standing before a holy God. The tax collector compared himself to no one other than God and properly concluded that God is so holy and perfect, infinitely so much so, that the tax collector's life fell woefully short in comparison to God alone. The tax collector realized that his only hope was for God to have mercy on him because he knew that he had no entitlement to that mercy on his own merits. And guess what? Neither do we. Without Christ, I am doomed 
even though I'm a pretty good person in comparison to others. That's why Jesus' invitation was to come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. The people that, that discover that chasing hard after perfection is exhausting work are the ones who get broken and are weary, who recognize they are not getting anywhere in their standing before God and that they desperately need His saving. In Christ, we are given the opportunity to stop trying to measure up, but instead to receive a justification that we didn't earn and that we don't deserve solely because God is merciful and lavish in His love that He has poured out on all who accept His invitation to enter. But those who refuse to acknowledge the depth of their own spiritual poverty miss God's invitation to enter His rest. You see, I think what happens is we, even even believers in the church, can grow dull over time and we slowly start to lower the holiness of God. We start to erode away just how infinitely perfect He is. And then we start to raise up our own righteousness as we start to compare ourselves to other people and think we're pretty good. And then before long, all of a sudden, God and us are pretty equal. And why in the world would I not be entitled to be in the presence of someone who's my peer? That is a dangerous place to be because it is so far from reality. But if we refuse to acknowledge the depth of our own spiritual poverty, we miss God's invitation to enter His rest. This forces us to take a long, hard look at my final point. What is so significant about today? If you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. That the author of Hebrews would stress it for the third time. Did you notice that? This is the third time that he says this exact same thing. This statement comes from Psalm 95, 7 and 8 and is first quoted in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, then quoted again in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 15, and then quoted a third time in Hebrews 4, verse 7. Within a span of just 20 verses, this is done. The author of Hebrews didn't have to do that. He could have quoted it once. But for some reason, the author does not want us to miss the very crucial warning that if today you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. What can be so dangerous about a hard heart that I have to take this seriously right now, today? A hardening of the heart gets that way slowly over time. And when it's fully there, it prevents us from waking up to the reality that our sin separates us from God. Think of it in in comparison to a hardening of our heart literally, when our arteries are hardening. The hardening happens slowly over time. We don't even notice it. We don't feel any different. No matter how much we see heart attacks happening around us or read about it in the news, we don't change our dieting habits. We rationalize that we're either too young and we don't eat that poorly. It's not in my genetics. Meanwhile, we become numb to the reality that our arteries are hardening daily. Then for some, without warning, in an instant, it's too late. Pastor and evangelist Ray Comfort said it this way, God's offer of grace will end. So we are commanded to seek the Lord while he may be found. We must then call upon him An intellectual belief in his existence is not saving faith. 
someday will be our last today. God's offer of grace will end, and I think this is why the author of Hebrews repeats it three times. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. We need to stop living like we have an endless supply of tomorrows and get around to addressing the hardening of our hearts that can happen today. The good news is you're not alone in trying to address a hardening of your heart. Ezekiel 36 verse 26 offers us a promise, a promise that we can claim and that God will deliver upon. Ezekiel 36 26 says this, I, God is speaking here, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. We are not in it alone to notice when our hearts are hardening and to tear off that callousness that makes us dull to the holiness of God and our standing before Him. God is there to do it with us. Are you weary? Are you burdened? Are you exhausted trying to run on this treadmill of perfection only to discover you aren't going anywhere? A hard heart can slowly come upon us. It doesn't matter if you've been calling yourself a Christian for years, you've been a churchgoer for decades, or you're here for the very first time today, never having had an encounter with Christ. We all get a hardened heart that lulls us into a sense of security we may have never had. Remember Tim's discussion of Hebrews 3.14 a couple weeks ago. We have come to share in Christ if. How we live in each moment going into the future gives evidence of the genuineness of our faith today. God's invitation to enter his rest still stands. It's an invitation that rescues you in the nick of time, right in the midst of your most weary and burdened situation and delivers you safely home. My fear is that you've had a good life. My fear is that you've never had to be worried about yourself, to have to be rescued. Because in times when we do stand helpless and need rescuing, and God stands in that gap, what happens is we get the ability to know something we can't possibly know. And that's that God's saving rescuing for an eternity of fellowship with Him is so beautiful, is so extraordinary, is so irresistible that we would stop at nothing to have it. But because none of us have been there, it's hard for us to know what that would be like to miss it. And so God gives us this little foretaste in the way He delivers us daily. We have accounts of it in Scripture we can lean on, and hopefully we've experienced it personally. When Charlotte and I spent that day together in February of 1992, when God rescued me at 2 in the morning, a Steve Camp song came to mind. If you don't know who Steve Camp is, you're too young. Steve Camp is a Christian singer, and he released a song back in 1988, the year I came to Christ, that I still listen to today. It's a song that removes the hardness of my heart whenever I start drifting toward indifference. The song is called A Love That Will Not Let Me Go. The words of this song cry out a gratitude to God for this invitation to enter His rest, a promise that still stands today. The song goes like this. 
Lord, you always knew the road that I would take, but then you saved me just in time. And what I owe to you, I could not repay. So I pledge you my whole life. I never trusted love before, but I won't be afraid anymore. And now I know that there is a love that will not let me go. I can face tomorrow because you hold me forever. Stronger than the mighty winds that blow, I'm safe within your arms. A love that will not let me go. Those words only tear away at us when we really recognize just how holy God is and how desperately, woefully short I fall from any right to be in his presence. As Brian and the worship team come up to play, I don't want you to miss out on an opportunity to reflect and respond to this invitation to enter God's rest that still stands today. In fact, through the beginning of this first song, I don't want you to sing. I don't want you to stand up. Just stay seated, close your eyes, we'll dim the lights, they'll play, and I want you to spend time, just you and God. Let us together be careful that none of us, myself included, be found to have fallen short of this invitation. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts.